Welcome to another episode of Shaped by the Sea, the podcast where we explore the perspectives of ocean-minded folks from all walks of life to learn something new from their unique aquatic experiences. Today, I'm joined by Lance Kittle, an avid fly fisherman from Colorado and the Associate Director at Inland Ocean Coalition. So welcome to the show, Lance. It's a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, thanks, Brian. It's always great to chat with you. I know we do a lot of chats off air too, so it's great to be on the same wavelength with you today. So I, you're you're the perfect person for this this show, which is going to be all about fly fishing and how folks who live more inland can get involved in ocean conservation. So I, I was curious if you could just give a little background about yourself and and the job that you do right now with Inland Ocean and how how did it all start for you? Yeah, for sure. So, uh, so again, my name is Lance Kittle. I'm the associate director here at the Inland Ocean Coalition. I've been here uh, about two years now. So I've been working on ocean conservation issues since about 2019. Uh, but before that, you know, I was in grad school. I did the whole thing. I got my master's in global sustainability. And it really ties into the daily operations that I work on here at the Inland Ocean Coalition, whether that be connecting people from the inland to the coasts, which is kind of implied in our name, uh, to volunteer and community engagement all the way up the scale to uh, policy and legislative activities as well. Nice. And, and where did you start fly fishing? Yeah, so I am a born Colorado native, uh, so I'm a bit predisposed to having fly fishing in my genes, I feel. <laughs> but uh I started fly fishing when I was about 10 years old um, and even further back. I mean, I was regular spin fishing since the time I could hold a fishing rod, right? So fly fishing really picked up for me at about 10 years old and uh, it never really went away. It's a bug that is really hard to shake once you catch it. Yeah. Did someone teach it, teach you how to get into it or like were you just fascinated by it, you know, and, and had to, had to kind of teach yourself? Yeah, so my dad definitely started me out with fly fishing. Um, I remember he bought me, I think it was a Walmart rod. I mean, you can't trust anything expensive with a 10-year-old anyway at the time. So, <laughs> so yeah, he picked Very me true. up a Walmart rod and uh, he took me out to the local ponds. And I, n I don't even think I was catching fish at the time, but it was just so much fun for me because fly fishing is a very active form of fly fishing or just fishing in general. Sorry. Yeah. Um, so yeah, from there, I mean, I was, I was fishing with my dad for a good while. And then as I kind of got a little bit older into my twenties, I really started picking it up for myself and exploring new means and methods of fly fishing. So it was, it was started by my dad and it just kind of catalyzed, uh, through not only my education out here in Colorado, but just my personal passion for being outdoors as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, I want to talk on this episode a lot about like the comparisons between fly fishing and spinner fishing or, or like bottom fishing because mm -hmm. you know I I grew up here on the in the Northeast and really like my my family taught me we would take the boat out on you know in in the Great South Bay in New York and we would go bottom fishing and that's that's like what I learned how to do and was kind of taught how to do but there's there's a ton of differences between like the fly fishing community and the saltwater recreational fishing community and like. First off, I mean, is, is, is how you do it, how you get into it. Um, and just as a whole, like they're two just entirely different monsters in themselves. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I was curious, like I, I have a, a bunch of questions to ask you. Um, but first, I was, I was curious, like, do you think that fly fishing is, is like a tough kind of community to get into? Like, is it very niche or is it, you know, kind of open to really like anyone? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So I think if you would have asked me this question five or 10 years ago, uh, the answer would be completely different than what it is today. And it's, it's really moved in a positive direction, which I'm happy to say, um, because more people are getting into fly fishing and some of the historic barriers for fly fishing are starting to kind of crumble away. And really yeah. reveal fly fishing as a more inclusive sport that should be accessible for everyone. Um, fly fishing really kind of, it's derived from, from trout fishing, right? And a lot of people, yeah. a vast majority of fly fishers are going after trout. Uh, that doesn't mean everyone, definitely, yeah. especially at this point. But uh, 
But, you know, trout fishing is kind of this, it's this connection with being outside. And I, and I think that with more people looking to be outside, especially at, at our current moment in the current day, uh, fly fishing is being transformed into this means of connectivity with yourself and your surroundings. So very yeah. fortunately, I think it costs less money to get into fly fishing. It's easier to educate yourself on how to fly fish. And there's a broader community to connect with if fly fishing is actually something you're interested in. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because I've I've always felt like um, like almost like like spinner fishing from shore, right? In in, in saltwater areas, like kind of any anyone really can do it, and it seems it's there's not much of a cost in most places like coastal um, to get a fishing license. It's, it's pretty minimal cost. Um, you know, there's not really much that you have to go through and it's almost like, like any, it's almost like anyone and their mother can go, you know, get a, get a spinner rod, like you said, from Walmart or really anywhere and just fit and just start like get that first experience in fishing. And Mm -hmm. that's, that's what I was for, for me, at least fly fishing always, always was like, it seemed like you had to have someone teach you how to do it, you know, like it, (laughs) But but now there's YouTube videos like I've I, I was I, I was talking to you about this earlier that, you know, I I'm I'm classically like I've always used a spinner rod or, or um, you know, bottom fishing rod. And mm-hmm. I, I want to I've been spending more time up in the mountains than I ever have before. And, you know, I see all these lakes and, and streams and I'm like, I, I got to teach myself how to fly fish because, <laughs> you know, especially in those stream environments, like it's. You'll, if you're using a spinner rod, you'll just get snagged on anything. But right. um, and it, it seems like a whole different experience. Like I've seen, I always see guys out there in you know in the White Mountains where I'm at, um, you know, fishing the rivers and and there's a lot of places where you can only fly fish. You can't actually use a spinner rod. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit to that. Like, is it is it um, you know is it tough to teach yourself how to fly fish nowadays? You know, that's a great question because there's so many levels of fly fishing. Uh, you know, you, the way that you mentioned it was, was a great kind of entry point into fly fishing, uh, in a similar way as an entry point into spin rod fishing, right? So you could grab a fly rod and you can go down to your local park and you can shake it around and get your caught yourself caught in all the trees and bushes and all that. And, uh, so there is a little bit of technique that I think you pick up over time, but the best way to learn how to fly fish is just to get outside and take your fly rod and try to learn how to cast. Uh, YouTube, another thing you mentioned, is a great tool and a great asset to learn the do's and don'ts of fly fishing, how you can set yourself up for success when you go out to those streams and lakes, and how you can advance yourself at a pace that's fitting for you. So when I started fly fishing, like I said, I started on the local ponds where there were uh, you know, bass and some of the smaller pumpkin seed fish. And I really wasn't trout fishing at the time. I was just learning the motions of how to use a fly rod correctly and how to set myself up for success when I enter some of those areas where the fishing can get quite good. Right. So, so people have so many tools at their disposal to learn how to fly fish and how to properly fly fish as well. And a big part of learning how to fly fish is how to handle fish in themselves. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's very that, true. Yeah, it's a whole nother beast when you're trying to, you know, pull a huge hook out of uh, a saltwater fish. But how do you translate that into dealing with a brook trout that's significantly smaller? It's significantly more delicate and it has different responses to uh, being pulled out of the water to have that hook retrieved. So. So yeah. there's a lot of different nuances that that I encourage people to learn if they're interested in learning about fly fishing. But I definitely think that it's an easy sport to get into if you have a little bit of time, dedication, and respect mostly for the environments that you're going to be in. Yeah, definitely. And that's that actually that word respect, I think, is is, is something I want to talk about next because you know, every fly fisher that I've ever met. Ha- they have this knowledge of of the environment, right? They're they're very conservation minded. They, at least in my opinion, um, you know, they they really want to minimize their impact on the on the on the fish on the fish itself and on the environment that they're fishing in. And I'm just curious, like compared to a lot of saltwater fishing, like the 
I know a lot of a lot of guys go out saltwater fishing to put meat on the boat, right? Or mm-hmm. you know, to get to get their the, the bloody decks, right? You know, that's that's you know, you had a good day out fishing. Yeah, the decks are all bloody. You got you know, you caught your keepers, and you have some some meat for the fridge. But it's fly fishing is like way different. You're not going out there to catch fish to eat. You know what I mean? And and the regulations are definitely a lot tighter. It seems so. Mm-hmm. I'm. I'm curious if you can speak to that. Like, as a whole, do you think that that fly fishing is, or fly fishermen and and, and women are are more conservation oriented? I totally think so, and I think that stems from a better understanding of the experience and more so seeking that connection that I spoke of earlier. Uh, fly fishing in itself is a very conservation minded. Uh, sport just because you have to understand the fish, you have to understand the environment, the conditions that you're fishing that day, and what is happening to ensure the longevity of the population of fish that you may be fishing for, right? So a lot of fly fishermen practice catch and release, uh, which I definitely fall into that category, where we're using lighter tackle, uh, especially for trout. And and through this podcast, I'll probably be referring mostly to trout in terms of freshwater species, just because that's what I have the most experience with. Uh, But when you're fly fishing for trout, you're usually, uh, not always, but you're usually in an area of some natural beauty, right? So you may be in a forest, you may be in the mountains, Uh, Definitely not limited to that, though. I do have some friends who love urban fly fishing, which is something that I have yet to get too far into and experience. But, uh, you know, the natural beauty of the area speaks volumes for itself. And so when you're standing on that creek in the middle of the mountains and you're catching these tiny brook trout or rainbow trout or brown trout uh, or cutthroats even here in Colorado, uh, you're, you're really experiencing something and you're building that respect. So it's you're not looking at a resource as something that you can tap into. You're looking at the resource as something that provides value to you. And I yeah. think a lot of great organizations back that up and really try to put that message out there that catch and release fly fishing is so much more rewarding when you see that fish swim away than if you were to pull the fish out of the water. And if you were to keep it, uh, you're looking quite literally at a tangible show of how uh, you're affecting the population, especially for yeah. trout and some of those more sensitive freshwater species. Yeah, that's that's a really good point because you know when you when you're when you're fishing in salt water, it, it almost seems like it's a vast pool of you know unlimited fish, right? Like it's right. it's tough it's tough to really like fathom that me pulling out three or four fish to keep and and you know for myself is is taking away from this almost seemingly infinite pool which obviously we know is not infinite um but when you're in fresh when you're in a stream you realize you're like there's only so much water and and you know it it just seems more uh limiting almost like that that Mm -hmm. that if if you take this fish you know away from away from this mountain environment or away from whatever coastal environment that you're fishing in that you know it you see the impact right like you 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 have that sense and um i I, this actually leads well into what I want to talk about next is to like why why it does cost more to fish uh, to, to actually get a freshwater fishing license in most states um, mm-hmm. as opposed to saltwater fishing licenses. So I know that uh, I mean from from my knowledge of it it's it's because uh, up here at least in New Hampshire in the Northeast uh, they do a lot of stocking of some of these uh, you know uh, the the lakes the uh, some of the streams they they stock them with with trout quite mm-hmm. often. Um, I'm wondering if that do you do you know like what what is the reasoning behind those increased costs? Yeah, well, I don't know for sure um, what all of the factors are that kind of go into the increased price for a freshwater fishing license. Which you're totally right. A freshwater fishing license typically does cost more than a saltwater fishing license. Yeah, uh, but I think it you know there's a, there's probably a couple indicators that kind of show us why the cost is is higher and. And the first kind of goes right back to what you were just saying about stocking lakes and stocking streams. You have to, as an angler, support the initiatives that are uh, providing you with the resource you're experiencing. So in this yeah. in this sense, uh, freshwater fishing, right? So you have 
fish hatcheries that are rearing fish, that are raising fish, and that are deploying fish into these areas. And that obviously costs a good amount of money. But the other reason that I think there may be an added cost is because of the size of the water that we're fishing. So you said it perfectly, Brian. You see the ocean as this huge, vast expanse. And within the ocean, there is plenty of habitat uh, for fish to spawn and raise um, broods. And so there's, there's a lot more just physical area in the ocean. But when we're yeah. talking about these three to four foot wide creeks in our mountains, we're really looking at a very finite resource that we have to pay attention to. And that also similarly needs a lot of energy, time and money to protect the resource in itself. So, yeah. so again, I'm not a hundred percent sure of all the factors that go into this, but I think the, the stocking aspect as well as just the limited amount of area uh, definitely lend to that raised cost for freshwater. Yeah, definitely. And, and to me, I mean, it makes sense why it's more money. Um, like I, I know he, for example, here it's, I think it's something around 70 plus dollars for a freshwater license. And it's, uh, I think only five or $10 for, for a, uh, a New Hampshire saltwater fishing license. Wow. That's but, a big difference. Yeah. Oh, it's huge. What, how much, how much does it cost out in Colorado? So we've got a couple different levels of fishing licenses that you can actually acquire. Obviously, we don't have any saltwater licenses out here. Yeah, um, yeah. But we do have resident versus non-resident. I think gotcha. the resident license comes in around 40. But if you're an out-of-state license, it comes in, I believe, around 70 or $80. So almost double the price. Yeah. Uh, but then we have, you know, like your single day, your three day, and then your annual. So there's always different costs, yeah. but it seems that people who are out of state are paying uh, almost two times of a premium for that same license than someone who is a resident of Colorado. Definitely. Definitely. And, you know, this, something that I find very interesting about um, my experiences, my experiences fishing in freshwater compared to saltwater is that fresh, a lot of, uh, I've, when I've been fishing in saltwater, I think once in my whole life have I ever encountered a wildlife officer who actually like asked for my license, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's it's fairly it's fairly unenforced. You know, it depends on where you're at, but there's sure. you know in, in a busy like for example on a busy summer day, you know you're out on the water. There's tons of boats out, and it's it seems to me that it's tougher to enforce saltwater fishing regulations uh, as opposed to freshwater because you know, if you're fishing at a lake or a stream, there's very specific access points. And, you know, mm -hmm. I've definitely, definitely been approached by wildlife officers asking for my, um, my fishing permit and my license. Um, and I was curious, you know, your, your perspective on that, like, have you ever encountered wildlife officers just enforcing the law while you've been out there? Um, and why you think that freshwater fishing regulations are like more and more commonly enforced than, than saltwater? regulations. Yeah. yeah. Well, out here in the West, you know, we definitely see all of our freshwater species as a very valuable asset and resource to our state economy. So I've been approached here in Colorado a good handful of times asking for my fishing license. Uh, and also when I fish in Utah and New Mexico, I see it enforced quite often as well. So uh, I always try to stay as close to up to date with my fishing license as possible. And if I don't have an active fishing license, I don't fish. The fines here are, are pretty heavy and you don't want to be in a situation where you're paying, you know, 500 to a thousand dollars for a ticket when you could have just bought your fishing license. Right. Yeah. So, so it's very enforced out here. And I think it's because of how important angling is uh, in terms of an economic asset to us. And I, I guess I could see, you know, with saltwater, you have not only commercial fishermen uh, occurring on a more frequent basis, but you're also having people who are just sitting on boats, too. So it may be harder for the wildlife officials to kind of judge how to go about a situation. Uh, but yeah. here in Colorado, if, if you have a fly rod in your hand, it's pretty obvious that you're fishing, right? So you should probably exactly. have your fishing license. Exactly. I, I just find that so interesting because in, you know, in, in saltwater environments, like illegal fishing is a huge concern and mm -hmm. it, it, ha it runs rampant in certain areas. And, um, you know, it's definitely a problem. 
um, for different, all different kinds of species, people fishing with traps for like crabs and lobster fish, stuff like that, um, right. to, to just fishing, you know, recreationally from, from shore for striped bass, for example. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've definitely seen people sneak a couple undersized fish into their coolers, you know, while I've been out fishing for stripers, uh, you know, at, at my local, you know, uh, surf casting spot, but it does, I just find it so interesting because it, it completely doesn't seem to be an issue with, with freshwater fish or as big of an issue you know if you see if you see someone with a fly rod for the most part you know that you can kind of assume that they're they know what they're doing they have their their permits and they're they're like respect pretty respectable of the environment right yeah and and i think we're also talking about two different means of engaging with our bodies of water right so here in the west a lot of people come here to catch those trophy trout uh, but they don't keep them Right. Whereas if you're talking about a saltwater environment, very similar to where you're at, Brian, I think people are more inclined to just keep their fish as we've been talking about throughout this episode. So, you know, with people who are coming out to experience what we have in terms of just like physical engagement, I think there's less of a desire to illegally fish and, and more of a desire to protect the resource, to protect the species and ensure that the future generations of those species have the same resources and um, care provided to them that the uh, current waterways are experiencing. So in terms of longevity, I think, uh, you know, the West has it pretty down pat and people are respectful of that, which is great. I mean, our resources are so important to us out here, especially water. I mean, you know how dry it gets out here in Colorado. So when water comes, you know, we want to protect it. And I think everyone just has that inherent desire to take care of our water sources. Not saying that we're (laughs) a shining example of water protection and uh, water equity for the folks downstream, but we do take it seriously enough that we want to protect and preserve our resources. Definitely. So it it seems like the the value really is in the in maintaining that experience for people to be able to come out and enjoy. Exactly. Yeah. So that's, that's awesome. I, I definitely, I wanted to get your experience on that, but that also leads me into another question I have for you, which is, um, have you, so since, since the pandemic started, have you seen more people out by you in Colorado participating in fishing? Like have, have the, the streams and the, and the rivers and, and lakes become more like more crowded with fishers or, or is it kind of, has it kind of been the same? Yeah, so the pandemic definitely had an impact on our waterways and the people who are coming out to experience them, for sure. Uh, I've seen a lot more fly anglers in the past year than I have previously. And I think that was just because everyone was sitting at home bored and needed something to do. Um, But I will say that Colorado has been pretty inundated with anglers from, you know, all across the world for quite a while. I mean, we have a lot of gold medal water out here for trout and we do have some areas where you can catch some really big fish, not only trout, but uh, pike as well. So with everyone coming out to the rivers and streams here in Colorado, we do see a little bit of inexperience or, uh, yeah, you know, maybe not inexperience, but just a bit of, and I hate to say it, but cluelessness yeah, <laughs> as, yeah, yeah. as people approach the water because they, it's a new area for them. They're not fully aware of kind of the, the unspoken rules of, of fly fishing on our, our rivers and streams. But yeah, the crowds out here and some of the more popular stretches are usually pretty packed in. Uh, which gotcha. is why I, I, tr- I try to stay away from the crowds and get to some of the more remote places. But I mean, you can't yeah. go wrong with a day of fishing regardless. So, you know, I'm not no. trying to knock anyone for trying fly fishing, but I do think that some some simple education, whether it be through YouTube or checking out some of the state resources or even just talking with someone else on the water can provide miles of experience. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA 
coastalnewstoday.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. So I'd compare, this is, this is funny, I'd compare it almost to like surfing lately. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious, uh, I have two questions for you. So mm-hmm. one of them being like, what were some of those unspoken rules that you mentioned, right? Mm-hmm. And, and also like, do you, do you, like, does the fly fishing community have like a word for newbies, right? Like when, <laughs> when, when, when you're surfing, like it, you, we call them kooks, right? Like every, right. And, and Hey, everyone was a kook at some point in their life, right? That's what I always, I always tell everyone. So like you, you don't, you're not too hard on them, but you teach them, right? Like, so right. they don't hurt. So they don't hurt anyone while they're out there surfing. And I'd imagine it's probably similar. Like, you know, it, it's definitely similar with fishing where, you know, if, if you see someone new who doesn't know at like a lick of what they're doing, mm-hmm. um, yeah, you, you want to tell them or, or kind of educate them in a way that that doesn't deter them from the sport, but it gets them to not mess up when they're around you again or, or when they're around anyone else. Right. So right. I was curious, what, what are what are some of those little uh, uh, tricks that 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 you see out there? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, obviously, catch and release is one of our our biggest unspoken rules, you know, when you're angling for a sensitive species, you want to treat the species with respect. But I mean, that can be applied to any species. You can catch a fish and put it back like that simple as that. And if you're careful enough with the fish and you're delicate enough with the fish, the fish will go on to live a great life and potentially provide another angler with the opportunity of, of catching that fish. Uh, So that that's probably one of our biggest ones. Um, You know, alongside that, fly fishing has really taken off in social media, and that's an entirely different conversation. We could go on for hours about the implications and impacts of social media on our natural resources. But one of the biggest things that a lot of fly anglers uh, kind of kind of look or or they frown upon it, I would say, is is like geotagging your posts on Instagram. So kind of. We call it spot burning. <laughs> yeah, where, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it's, so you, it's you the same the, with surfing. Yeah, same right, thing. Right. So you put the location and then you put it out there for the world to see. And then someone sees you having this awesome, epic time and they want to go and do that too. Well, you never really understand the snowball effect of what those posts could actually cause to that uh, that watershed, right? So. So spot burning, definitely something that a lot of people don't like to do. And it's actually funny. We, a lot of folks combat that with uh, geotagging funny places, you know, like, oh, oh yeah. I was at White Castle and I caught this 26-inch brown <laughs> trout, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but in terms of new anglers being on the water, we don't really have like a, a term for that per se. I just look at new anglers as people who don't thoroughly understand uh all of the the uh, energy and the, and the time and again the respect that go into fly fishing. So yeah. it, it's more an opportunity than anything to educate people on uh, you know how to handle a fish properly. That's another big one right now. Actually, is is how people handle some of these sensitive species like trout because you see a lot of people gripping them by the jaw, which trout have incredibly yeah. sensitive jaws. So the proper way to hold a trout is just to place one hand under the belly of the fish and then the other hand by the tail. Exactly. Uh, but, but then even at that point, you know, we have pretty big issues with tailing gloves, which are gloves that people will use to hold the fish uh, for their catch and release picture. Right. Yeah. But the, uh, the tailing gloves actually remove a bit of the slime from the trout. And so they end up with some sort of fungal infections or some other even uh, deadlier types of diseases later on down the road, like whirling disease, which doesn't necessarily tie into tailing gloves, uh, but is a huge, huge factor for rainbow trout out here in the West too. So, so, you know, just to recap kind of the, the things you should consider if you're thinking about fly fishing is to keep your spots to yourself. There's obviously some great resources that'll point you in directions of where the fishing can be good. Um, you know, not, not treating the trout disrespectfully and, and really just showing it some love and compassion. 
keeping them in the water is always a great thing to do with fish. I mean, that's where they come from. So we try to reduce the amount of time that fish are out of the water. And just understanding that the use of some materials like tailing gloves is, is a really uh, unjust practice when it comes to the entirety of fly fishing, you know? So if you want to take yeah. a picture with a fish, you can leave it in the net. You can take a picture of it in the net. If you do want to hold it, hold it with your bare hands that you've wet in the water. So you're not uh, pulling any of the slime off the fish. And just, again, really treating the resource, the fish, the area with the respect that it deserves. Yeah. And you can really tell, like, that's that's awesome because that, that was the, the question that I wanted to ask you was, you know, you mentioned social media being such a huge thing with, with mm. fishing. And, you know, that's that's something that crosses saltwater and freshwater barriers is you catch a fish, everyone wants to take a picture of it, right? Like, right. it's it's a very common thing. And people have been doing it for, you know, forever. People have been, since, since we've had... Since fishermen have had cameras, we've been taking pictures of the fish, <laughs> that we catch, right? So we're yep. so we're not just going back to the bar afterwards and say, "Oh, look, the, you know, the one I got was about this big," you know, right. holding out like you're <laughs> holding out your arms at like you know three feet or so, whatever. You're right. oh, ex- exaggerating it, but um, but that's definitely, especially with social media, it's a huge thing. Is that everyone wants to get a picture? So I think those tips are are definitely very helpful for anyone that's out there who wants to, you know, who who wants to share this info with new fishers or is a new fisher themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and also what I found super interesting about was really about that geotagging because that's, that's something that, that crosses, it's really any outdoor recreation activity. That's kind of like a, a an unwritten rule, whether you're hiking, definitely if you're surfing mm-hmm. um, and then fishing for sure. Like I've seen with, with saltwater fishing, like people fishing from shore, I've seen people actually, crop their photos of fish that they've caught to blur the background so yeah. that way people yep. can't even like tell where they are um you know I, people take those like drastic steps to protect their spots but it's definitely a thing and and i'm curious also with fly fishing do you do you, have you seen like a level of localism in fly mm-hmm. fishing like is there like this is my spot kind of uh, uh a vibe when you when you're fishing on public public lands or like, you know, a, a spot that really anyone could get to it, Are there, are there guys that are kind of, um, you know, that, that deter, you know, it, like a localism, it's deterring right. new people or, or people who don't live there. Right. From, from participating. Yeah. Um, unfortunately I do think that this is something that the fly fishing community is particularly prone to experiencing or dishing out. Uh, there have been a good amount of times where I've been waiting in the rivers out here and a guide comes by with, you know, his drift boat and his clients from whatever state they're visiting from. And I mean, in theory, the guide should be the one respecting the person who's waiting in the river because they have a boat that they can either move out of the way or they can just zip by really quickly. Uh, But I've been in areas where, you know, there's a particularly good fishing hole. So it's like a deep hole in the river or the riffle is slow and I've been standing there uh, just, you know, doing my thing fishing and a guide boat will come up to the top of the hole, drop anchor and just let the clients hit the same hole that I'm trying to fish. And I don't particularly appreciate being invaded upon (laughs) when I'm fishing. It's, it's really my practice of getting away and enjoying the solitude and serenity of nature. So yeah, unfortunately localism is a bit of an issue in fly fishing. And not only that, I think there's a bit of sass that comes from each individual state, especially out here in the West, claiming, oh, we have better fish than Colorado does. Or, you know, Utah has been fishing good, but Wyoming is just garbage, you know. So, yeah, outside of just like your local watershed localism, we do see it state size as well. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, with any of these sports, it's like where where you have to be protected you do in a way have to be protective of like, if you have a good spot, you know, mm-hmm. you, you want to make sure that it stays good and that, and that, you know, people who are making money off of, you know, these tours and, and all that kind of stuff um, mm-hmm. aren't, aren't going to blow it up and, and, you know, ruin it for you and, and for, you know, whoever else locally is fishing. But so that's, that's an interesting point that I definitely transcends uh, fresh and saltwater boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But but for leading from that, I do I do have a couple questions about more specifically about conservation with you. And um, so I know like obviously fly fishing is a great way to get outdoors and you know fishing in general, especially in the pand- in these times of pandemic and, and quarantine, like tons of people have have just bought a rod and, and started going outside. And mm-hmm. I'm curious what your experiences are, like what conservation issues generally um, do f- does the fly fishing community care most about? You know, and, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm going to lay out five of them for you here. So uh, climate change, overfishing, pollution, invasive species or habitat loss. Would you wow. uh, of those, what would you say really like the, the fly fishing community relates to most most closely or like cares about most closely? Yeah. So <laughs> it's it's funny that you bring up those five points because I would say, honestly, the fly fishing community takes all five very seriously uh, yeah. from invasive species to to watershed protection. Right. So even here in Colorado, you know, rainbow trout, brown trout and brook trout are not native to our waters. And yet there are some of our biggest angling opportunities out here as well. So yeah. here in Colorado, we've been working uh, pretty hard to restore native habitat for native cutthroat trout, like the greenback cutthroat trout, for example. Um, and that that kind of leads into some of the other points, like watershed protection. Like if you're going to restore a habitat for a greenback cutthroat trout, that means that the watershed was either infiltrated by an invasive species or there was some anthropogenic impact on that specific waterway. So it could be um, mine, mine tailings affecting the quality of the water. It could be bank destruction. Uh, it could just be overfishing itself too. So, so yeah. we work on all of these pretty equally, I would say. I think another one to add to your list is um, uh, the process of building and removing dams. I mean, I'm sure you've heard of the pebble oh, yeah. mine in Alaska, and that's kind of the poster child of how a dam can affect the natural movement of fish. But even a small dam that's created by, you know, someone hanging out in the mountains on a small creek and they build a dam of rocks can adversely affect a, uh, a watershed, right? Yeah. So, so I would love to say that we care about one thing more than the other just to be able to emphasize the importance of it. But really, all five of what you just said are extremely important to not only maintaining the health of our waterways, but also um, the health of any aquatic organisms that are in those ecosystems. And, and we could even move away from trout for a second and talk about just the, the insect species as well. Yeah. And if you're affecting a body of water by uh, doing something like rock stacking, right, where you build yep. those towers of rocks, you're, you're really adversely affecting the ecosystem. So you're taking um, the river rocks and you're stacking them up, but you don't know what insects could be lying under those rocks, what, uh, what is going to be the effect of creating that rock stack. And I, I know it sounds trivial, right? Like, oh, I'm just putting a couple of rocks on top of each other. But when every single person has that same mentality, it really does create an adverse effect for some of these ecosystems. So, you know, in order yeah. to, to mitigate oneself from some of these issues, I think it's really just important to have respect for the area, allow it to exist without your interactivity or your interaction in terms of, you know, creating a rock stack or kicking some dirt into the river, right? Just just being respectful and, and reducing your impact, uh, but also just helping others understand that one small step in a wrong direction, especially, and this goes back to social media. If you post yourself doing something uh, that could be considered harmful to an environment, but your followers don't know that. So they go out and recreate that same yeah. scenario. We're looking at a huge snowball effect of, of environmental degradation from anthropogenic effects, uh, as exactly. well as just, just not properly respecting the areas that we're all trying to enjoy. So if you're not doing it for yourself, do it for the seven-year-old who's out on the river for the first time that day, or for the older gentleman who's trying to recreate some of his most 
favorite memories from 40, 50 years ago. You know, it's it's bigger than all of us. And we can take that that bigness and reduce it into um, actions that we either take or don't take that that really help us protect these environments. Dude, wow. Wow, that you you said that perfectly, man. Like, I, I I'm gonna have to quote you on that. Yeah, <laughs> that, go that for was, it. Go for it. No, no, you that that you hit the nail on the head there. Um, and that's you know anyone anyone who's listening can understand that. Like, you you there's a re, there's reasons that we protect it, and it's it's obviously for the for the ecosystem as a whole, but it's it's for the future generations of of people who can enjoy this these places. Like like you said, that seven year old kid the the older fellow who's, you know, trying to relive and, and just find joy in, you know, what has always given him joy, right? Like mm-hmm. that's, that stuff, it hit, it hits home with that human element. Um, and also, yeah, yeah, definitely knock over, knock over those uh, stacks when you see them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, um, couldn't agree. Couldn't agree yeah, more. No, but, but that does, it, it is interesting how like the, it, I come down to, a few big differences between saltwater and freshwater fishing and like, and really like it comes down to when you're fishing in these freshwater environments, it, it feels like to me that they are just inherently more fragile that, you know, mm-hmm. that they, they are, when you think of the ocean, obviously the ocean, what we, what we do on the ocean does have that, you know, very, you know, long lasting impacts, but it's when you're, when you're on a lake or in a, in, on a stream, like it's it just, it's a, a less vast of an, of an environment. Like you mm-hmm. can, you can physically see the impacts as they pretty much happen. Like you right. said, with these dams and it's like, it doesn't take years to see that impact. Like it, I'm sure in the case of like a lot of the habitat loss, it's, it's fairly fast moving the impact. Um, yeah, and, definitely. but that's, that's really like what I'm kind of taking away here is that, that these freshwater environments are like, it, it, change happens a little bit faster than it does there that compared to, you know, the, the open ocean and, mm-hmm. and the resources there are, you know, they're definitely valuable, but they're also close. They're closer to, you know, our own developments. Uh, they're, they're closer to all these other anthropogenic impacts that can affect mm-hmm. them, whether it's pollution, um, you know, development, all of that. So, yeah, I, I, I mean, that's, that's kind of like what I really have been taken away yeah. Yeah. And I think there's, you know, there is a bit of responsibility that all of us have, whether we're fishermen or not, to respect our waterways and to treat just our natural environments with respect. But, you know, how we talked about how social media can have a very negative impact on uh, on some of these areas, it can also have a really positive impact. And there's some people who are taking some really awesome strides and moving the dial towards it's really cool to protect your areas and to care about them rather than I'm just going to show up and take my, you know, take my resources and, and call it good. Right. Um, one of our, our shining stars out here in the West is uh, Elon Stribling. And he is a gentleman who is bringing not only comedy into some of these conservation <laughs> talks, uh, he's great. You'll have to check him out. I'll send you yeah. his link. But but he's also bringing a lot of diversity and equity into the sport as well. So, you know, he's connecting directly with women. He's directly connecting with our BIPOC communities. And he's just setting a great example of how to just completely deconstruct um, the the privilege of a sport and really offer it up to everyone in an equitable solution. And then, you know, outside of these individuals, we see organizations like the Mayfly Project, who are connecting foster children to fly fishing and their natural environments and showing them that the sport is not just a sport. It's a means of connectivity. It's a means of balancing yourself and feeling that you have a a purpose and a place, especially in these natural environments. And it, it's, it's just so cool because as fly fishing grows, yes, we are seeing some impacts, but we're also seeing a lot of people who are, are taking the initiative to show the entire world, no matter what your background is, that you have access to this resource. You have the ability to enjoy it, but you also have the ability to protect it, right? I mean, if you're not able to make it to a mountain stream, there may be a pond close to you. And while you're out there fly fishing for 
whatever fish may be in that pond, you may see like a great blue heron or a bald eagle fly over. And, and there's just so much more to it than these, these single focuses of I'm going out to catch a fish. And I, I think fly fishing does a great job of not only expanding people's views of what the natural world can provide for them, but also how you can interact with, with the natural world. And, and one of my favorite quotes, and I'm sure every angler is going to sigh when I say this because it's been <laughs> beaten to a pulp, but uh, the saying goes, you know, a bad day of fishing is better than a good day at the office. And oh yeah. I won't speak to that because I'm on company time right now, but uh, you know, that's how it goes. And, and I, I see a lot of value in people seeing, seeing that as a, a great means to connect as well. Oh yeah. No, you hit the nail on the head there. It's, it's, I, I'm not going to lie. I use that quote almost, almost weekly whenever yeah. I'm out there. <laughs> I see someone in the parking lot. I'm like, you know, if the waves are kind of small, I'm like, yeah, I bet it's better than a day in the office. Right. Yeah, you know, exactly. Bad, bad, bad day, surf, bad day fishing, bad day surfing way better than a day in the office any day. But, yeah. um, and no, but you're, you, you hit the nail on the head there. Like the more people, and it, it's like a balance, the more people that we can get outdoors and experiencing you know, nature firsthand through and fishing is the perfect vessel for that. Mm-hmm. The, the more that they connect with their natural environment and want to protect it. Like it's, it's pretty, it's a pretty simple equation, you know? And yep. yeah. And you know, all of those first time fishers, like you're obviously people make mistakes for sure, but everyone learns from him and you turn into that lifelong advocate who, like you said, you're eventually everyone has that, that first time fishing and eventually they end up that, that 70 year old, you know, that's coming back to their, their childhood fishing spot to catch, to catch a fish again. And, and, you know, it, and relate to that feeling that they had all those years ago. Cause it's, it's like a universal language fishing. It, it just like, you know, it, it spending any amount of time outside. It's all a universal language that everyone can understand for sure. Yeah. And, I couldn't agree more with that. And, and just to tag onto that really quickly, I think that fly fishing is probably our best means of, conserving species uh it's the least invasive means of fishing there's barbless hooks we're not going out with weighted treble hooks and snagging fish you know you're you're fooling the trout into thinking that it's eating what it already eats right so you're not introducing a foreign substance or um, a means of fishing that isn't natural to the fish so you're really connecting on that natural level with the fish as well by understanding you know, this fish at this time of year is going to eat this bug. So that's what I should put on uh, my tippet, right? Whereas sometimes when um, more commercial fishing vessels go out, there's obviously not that connection of how do I trick this fish into thinking it's eating something that's natural to it. You're really trying to just bulk up on the amount of fish you're catching, right? So, So in terms of the the most natural means of connecting with a fish i would say fly fishing is our best example oh yeah a hundred percent a hundred percent i i definitely agree with you there and and so lance one more question for you here um i was just gonna say uh so you you work you do a ton of great work with inland ocean coalition um what do you find is like the biggest reason that that inland communities want to engage with ocean conservation work and you know like what what would you say is like the, a great step for someone who's, who like is listening to this and wants to get more involved in, in conservation work and, and learn about how, you know, the streams connect to the ocean and how, how all of this is, is really one big picture. Um, what, what would you suggest is, uh, is the best way for them to go about that? Well, that's a great question because, you know, as an inland person, I don't see the ocean every day. And as a matter of fact, a majority of our nation really doesn't see the ocean every day. But that doesn't mean that we don't have the ability to connect with the ocean, even if it's not in front of us, right? Um, The idea that you don't have to see the ocean to protect it is kind of one of our mantras with uh, the Inland Ocean Coalition. And it, it really speaks volumes about what we just talked about in terms of, you know, the resources that that affect us positively the most or the resources that give us that feeling of peace and serenity, or maybe you look at it through a faith-based lens where you see, uh, you know, our natural surroundings as one of God's greatest gifts. I mean, there's, there's a lot of ways to connect, right? And, and so the ocean is our, our lifeblood 
for the earth. I mean, the ocean provides so much more than we will ever know. And that same lens can be looked at that same trout stream in the mountains, right? That, that moment that you think, you don't even have to be there. You just think about it and you can picture in your head what, you know, the trout stream looks like, the, the fresh smell of pine or whatever trees, right? Um, and, and just that feeling of serenity and, and the calling to protect that so that not only you can enjoy it, but again, the, the future generations and even some of our past generations can continue to enjoy these uh, resources for what they are, not, not affected by man-made um, obstructions or by anthropogenic effects. Just simply allowing it to exist is one of the, the biggest things that I see people uh, connecting with. So, so if if you are in an inland state and uh, you you do care about the ocean, uh, definitely reach out to us here at the Inland Ocean Coalition. We've got all sorts of fun ways that you can work uh, either individually or with your community on some of these uh, issues and solutions. Fortunately, we we're really running into a, a situation where we are progressing our conservation efforts and. We need as many people who are interested in conserving our resources as possible to be able to back this up and really keep pushing that dial forward. So obviously reaching out, but if you're unable to reach out, just simply take five minutes, go outside, don't wear your AirPods, you know, just allow <laughs> the natural world around yeah. you to create your own soundtrack and, and just connect with yourself on on the level of I enjoy where I am and I value what is around me and I respect that and I want to continue that outside of my own realm and and just try to uh, try to engage people on that too. Definitely, definitely, and I, I think that's a perfect way to end this this episode here, Lance. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to to share your insight on fly fishing and. Inland Ocean concert, uh, Inland Ocean Coalition knowledge at, with our audience, and I, I, you know, I know, I know, I learned a ton about this. I'm about to go out to uh, to my local fishing store, grab a grab a nice fly rod for this season, and uh, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a go for sure. I'm, I I'll make the transition. I think you should. Yeah, yeah, you're <laughs> gonna have a great time. And thanks for having me, Brian. It was awesome to chat with you. Thank you.